Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Before we get started, I have my usual notices. First of all, I want to thank all of you that have been writing to me or writing reviews on iTunes. It's great to hear from you all, and I love answering your questions and finding out what you think about the show. I would also like to thank all of my patrons on Patreon, and all of you who have kept patience with me for so long. If you'd like to keep up with the latest news from the show, then you can follow on Facebook and Twitter. The links for all these things are in the show notes. Next, this is the fourth and final part in my series of episodes on Catherine of Aragon. If you haven't already done so, I'd recommend that you go back and listen to the previous episodes, as this one builds upon all of the work that I've done so far. To all my new listeners, welcome. To everyone else, welcome back. Hello and welcome to the Queens of England podcast. Episode 40, Catherine of Aragon, A Most Obstinate Woman. When we last left Catherine, she had just done her brilliant speech in her own defence at the Legatine Court, complete with kick-ass mic-drop ending. This was then followed up by her chief defence lawyer, Bishop Fisher, then stating that he was willing to die in defence of her cause. The King's public reputation, which even up to now was still pretty good, was starting to take a battering, and his chief minister, the Lord Chancellor Thomas Wolsey, knew that his reputation, and possibly his life, depended on getting the right outcome. In desperation, he implored Catherine to come back to the court and recognise its authority, but she refused, saying, quote, Will any Englishman counsel or be friendly unto me against the king's wishes? It was a rhetorical question, but one that both knew the answer to. The court case dragged on for weeks, without much prospect of a decision. It was more or less decided that the marriage could only be lawful if Catherine and Arthur had not slept together while married, but that was hardly a shocker. The one person for whom this was the ideal outcome was the visiting Cardinal Campeggio, who had been under orders from the Pope to hold up proceedings. In mid-July, he suddenly announced that it was time for him to take a holiday. Why? Well, the Papal Curia goes off on its summer holiday right now, and since this court was technically an extension of the Papal Curia, then so much this. It was a pretty generous amount of holiday, if truth be told. The court was to be adjourned until October, Nice job if you can get it, I suppose. He came under great pressure from Henry and Wolsey to make a judgment before this deadline, but he refused. He wrote to the Pope that, quote, I will not fail in my duty. When giving sentence, I will have only God before my eyes and the Holy See. 
Finally, before the court on the 23rd of July, Campeggio announced that he could not give judgment at all until he had talked to the Pope. There was fury, but the deed was done, or not done as one might argue. After all this time and effort, the decision would be taken, after all, in Rome, and no one was under any illusion what the decision of the Pope, still effectively in Charles V's gilded cage, would be. This was a great victory for Catherine. By refusing to recognise the legitimacy of the court, she had exposed the spinelessness of the Pope's strategy. He had hoped that if he just let things play out, they would all go away. Pope Clement didn't give a justification of the decision until a year later, when, in a letter to Henry, he wrote that, quote, We sent a legate to England at the king's own request to judge the case in conjunction with the English legate, and did not revoke him till the queen had complained frequently that she, as a stranger, was obliged to submit to judicial proceedings at the will of the king, whose word was law. She appealed to us, put in an oath of fear, and we, in matter of such great scandal, which could not otherwise be expunged, undertook to judge the case ourselves. So, in the words of the Pope, it was Catherine what won it. She had stood up for herself, and made the right cause, and so she had won the day. If she was the great winner out of this, then the great loser was Thomas Wolsey. He'd staked his reputation on getting Henry his divorce. Although he had not been allowed to follow the strategy that he had wanted, he had been the lead negotiator and was the face of the campaign. He had failed, and Henry had lost patience with him. At first he was just stripped of most of his offices and income, but it would not be long before he faced more serious charges of treason, and just over a year later, he was dead, though it was through natural causes and not the headsman's axe. Other failed ministers of Henry would not be so lucky. Catherine would not have mourned his passing. Like I said last time, she saw Wolsey as the snake in the grass, the man who had poisoned the ear of the king against her. Now this is almost certainly not true, or at least only to an extent. Wolsey and Catherine had been political rivals for a long time. Catherine represented the alliance with Spain and the empire. Wolsey favoured an alliance with France. Catherine wanted to use her office as queen to influence the decisions of the king. Wolsey wanted the only mouth in Henry's ear to be his. But that said, there is no way that Wolsey wanted all of this. He had nothing to do with Henry's decision to divorce Catherine, and in failing to achieve this almost impossible dream, he had lost everything, including his own life. In July 1529, yet another imperial ambassador arrived at court, this time replacing Mendoza. His name was Eustace Chapuis, and this is definitely a name that you need to remember. Eustace Chapuis. When he met with Catherine, with Henry's permission, he found the Queen very guarded about who to trust. She spoke to him in a whisper so that only he could hear. She asked him to thank Campeggio for his, quote, rightful and honest behaviour and the trouble he has taken in this affair. She also instructed Chapuis to warn Charles against, quote, any attempts past or future made by the King or his ambassadors to persuade your majesty that the divorce case had merely been instituted for the discharge of his conscience. This is not the fact. The idea of the separation originated entirely in his own iniquity and malice. This reference to his moral shortcomings is a clear reference to Anne Boleyn, someone whom Catherine obviously had no love for. Despite the fact that up till now she had beaten Henry at every turn, Catherine must have finished 1529 feeling rather low. Her faith that Henry would return to her, just as he had done after all his other affairs, was shattering. The new imperial ambassador, while a formidable character, was not at all acquainted at the moment with the political realities, 
believing that the support that Catherine had amongst the people would, in the end, sway Henry, and that the mere spectre of Charles V would terrify the king into submission. Catherine had been here a lot longer than Chapuis. She knew better. The stress that she was under showed in an outburst that she made to the king late that year. Now, despite going through the bitterest of divorces, Henry and Catherine still dined together occasionally. Not as a matter of course, but on major feast days and religious holidays. She still lived in the same court as him and as Anne Boleyn. According to Giles Tremlett in his biography of Catherine, quote, The three members of this menage were each, in their own way, strong figures, with the king sometimes seeming the weakest. The court looked on, unsure how to react, but always ready for gossip. A tense, false patina of normality was maintained. When they were together, Catherine and Henry behaved with exaggerated cordiality. Catherine hid her anguish with exaggerated queenly serenity. This weird facade sometimes broke down, however, as it did on the feast day of St Andrew. They were dining together, as per normal on a major feast day, when Catherine could hold it in no longer. Why, she exclaimed, was he shunning her? Why did he not visit her bedchamber? Why did they not dine together more often? Though at first meek, Henry quickly returned her anger with gusto. Why do you complain, he shouted. She had her own household and could do what she wanted. He then said that, quote, She ought to know that he was not her legitimate husband, as innumerable doctors and canonists all men of honour and probity, and even his own almoner, Dr. Lee, who had once known her in Spain, were ready to maintain. He then said something that, if she had not heard it before, would have shocked her to the core. He said that, quote, Should not the Pope, in conformity with the above opinions so expressed, declare their marriage null and void, then in that case he, the King, would denounce the Pope as a heretic and marry whom he pleased. If she was shocked by this outburst of heresy, Catherine, though, gave it back as good as she took it. Quote, the Queen replied that he himself, without the help of doctors, knew perfectly well that the principal cause alleged for the divorce did not really exist. And as to your almoner's opinion in this matter, I care not a straw. He is not my judge in the present case. It is for the Pope, not him, to decide. Respecting those of other doctors, whether Parisian or from other universities, you know very well that the principal and best lawyers in England have written in my favour. Indeed, if you give me permission to procure counsel's opinion in this matter, I do not hesitate to say that for each doctor or lawyer who might decide in your favour, and against me, I shall find 1,000 to declare the marriage is good and indissoluble. Henry then stormed off and went to have a second dinner, this time with Anne Boleyn. Turns out that having a mistress was hungry work. She remonstrated with him for allowing Catherine to beat him yet again. Quote, did I not tell you that whenever you disputed with the Queen, she was sure to have the upper hand? Catherine proved time and time again that when it came to rhetoric and force of will, she could wipe the floor with her husband. If only that would be enough. Angered by yet another humiliation, Henry started to treat Anne Boleyn more and more like a Queen, and Catherine found herself relegated away. At feasts and tournaments, it was the mistress, not the Queen, that sat by the King's side while Catherine was elsewhere. She found the most trivial responsibilities taken away from her, including, amazingly, sewing Henry's shirts. According to Eustace Chapuis, quote, Recently he sent the Queen some cloth, begging her to have it made into shirts for him. The lady, Anne Boleyn that is, hearing of this, called before the King the person who had taken the cloth, one of the principal gentlemen of the bedchamber. 
Although the king himself acknowledged that this had been done by his order, she said many things to the bearer in the king's presence, vowing that she would have him punished severely. Henry often comes across in these sources as a very different character to the one commonly portrayed. He often comes across indecisive and meek, stuck between two women who were his intellectual superior. Catherine had the respectability, the popularity, the gravitas, and the courage to take him on. Anne Boleyn, as we shall see soon, had the intellect, raw sexuality, and repartee to win him over every time. It is a fascinating window onto this man, and not one that many people talk about. Anne now was fully on the warpath, and had no scruples in weakening her opponent. And finally, she managed to deliver a decisive blow against Catherine. She recognised that Catherine had been utilising her contacts at court to create what was effectively a spy network. Anne acted at both ends of the chain, banning gentlemen at court who were known to be Catherine's supporters from seeing her, and then surrounding Catherine with her own supporters who could keep an eye on her. This meant that Catherine had enemies within her own household, and had little to no idea of what was going on at court. Cut off from it, she focused her attentions now on Rome completely, and there she had a little more luck. In March 1530, two months after officially crowning Charles V as Holy Roman Emperor, the Pope finally made a decision regarding the divorce. Kinda. Sorta. Well, it wasn't a decision per se, but it was an intervention. He said that he was still mulling over the issue, but he promulgated a papal bull stating that Henry was not to marry any other woman, and that in the meantime, Henry should continue to treat Catherine with the reverence and respect due to a queen and his wife. If Henry refused to go along with this bull, then he and his counsellors would be excommunicated and the country placed under interdict, essentially releasing his subjects from their loyalty to the king. A fortnight later, he released another bull, this time banning any churchman, notary or advocate from discussing the issue until he had come to a decision. While this wasn't the judgement that everyone had been waiting for, it was a signal from Rome that one was perhaps imminent. After the glacial progress of the last few years, this was, finally, some limited action. He also suggested that a new court should be set up, with judges to be chosen by Henry and Catherine, but Henry had had enough of papal courts. Both Henry and Catherine wrote responses to this bull and sent them to Rome. Henry's was direct and tactless to the point. He lambasted Clement for not allowing the decision of the divorce to be taken in England, and out and out called him a servant of Charles V. Catherine's response was no less angry, but still full of her clearly deep-felt belief that Henry would essentially return to her. I will quote sections of this long letter here. Quote, I believe that your highness well understands that there is no learned or conscientious person acknowledging the power and authority of the Holy See who does not maintain and agree that the marriage between the king, my lord, and me is indissoluble. Since God alone can separate us, I cannot do less than complain that my petitions should have been so long disregarded by your holiness. One thing alone that comforts me in the midst of my tribulations is to believe that God wishes to punish me for my sins in this world, and that therefore your holiness, his vicar on earth, will not forgive me. I humbly beg your holiness to have pity on me, and accept as though I have been in purgatory, the penance I have already endured for so many years. I am convinced that God, in whom all my hopes are concentrated, will not abandon me in this cause, in which justice is so obviously with me. The remedy lies in issuing the sentence and determination of my case without any delay. Any other course short of that will do more harm than good, as appears quite evident from the evils which delay has already produced. 
Should the sentence be further deferred, your holiness will appreciate that the delay will be the cause of a new hell, the remedy for which will entail more disastrous measures than have ever yet been tried. She then goes on to list a series of grievances and warnings to the Pope about various embassies sent by Henry to him. After that, she writes, quote, My plea is not against the king, my lord, but against the inventors and abettors of this cause. I trust so much in the natural goodness and virtue of the king, my lord, that if I could only have him two months with me, as he used to be, I alone should be powerful enough to make him forget his past. But as they know this to be true, they do not let him live with me. These are my real enemies, who wage such a constant war against me. These are the people from whom spring the threats and bravados preferred against your holiness. They are the sole inventors of them, not the king, my lord. It is therefore urgent that your holiness put a very strong bit in their mouths, which is no other than the sentence. With that, the tongues of the bad counsellors shall be stopped, and their hope of mischief vanish. The greedy thieves will no longer devour him on whom they have been feeding all this time. They will set him at last at liberty, and he will become as dutiful a son of your holiness as he was in former times. It's hard to know how much of this was exaggeration for the Pope's sake, and how much the true window into Catherine's mind at this time. But I do think that this letter exposes something fundamental into Catherine's views on the divorce at this time. She seems to be truly convinced that all she needs to do is remove the poisonous people around Henry, people like the Boleyns and Norfolk, and the king will come to his senses and run back to him. This suggests that she was delusional, and maybe she was, but this was all she had. She had to believe that the husband, at his core, did not want this. He was like Theoden at the start of the Two Towers, if you'll forgive another Lord of the Rings reference, weakened and wizened by the efforts of evil counsellors. No matter that she had once thought this about Wolsey, and yet after his departure things had only gotten worse. The Pope was her last hope, and she was doing everything to get him to side decisively with her. As if the stakes weren't ratcheted up enough, in February 1531 there was an attempt on the life of Catherine's chief noble supporter in England, Bishop John Fisher. Someone poisoned the broth at dinner one day, but he refused dinner as he was an ascetic going through a phase of self-starvation. The meal was given to members of his household and some beggars outside. As a result, two people died, and suspicion immediately fell on the cook, who was tortured and then executed through being boiled alive by Henry in an attempt to eliminate suspicion. Despite this, the cook did not give up who had given him the poison. People marvelled at the courage and nobility of Catherine at this time, and how she had always kept her head up high. In a letter written by Chapuis to his master, the Emperor, he relates a conversation that he heard between the Marquis of Dorset and the Duke of Suffolk, who was one of Henry's and Anne's staunchest supporters. Quote, I hear the Duke of Norfolk, seeing her the other day, come out of her chamber, began to say to the young Marquis that it was really a thing of the other world to witness the courage of the Queen, who did not at all feel alarmed at the course of affairs, and upon the Marquis remarking that it was no doubt owing to her own consciousness of the justice and right of her cause. The Duke replied to him, it must be owned that the devil and no other must have been the originator and promoter of this wretched scheme. Henry tried to take the issue of the divorce to Parliament, but he screwed that up. He and his councillors thought they had cleared the chamber of Catherine's supporters, but then they found two bishops, that of Bath and of St Asaph. It wasn't just support for Catherine that persuaded these bishops to make this brave intervention. It was widely suspected at the time that the Berlins and their faction, people like Thomas Cramner, were closet Lutherans, Protestants. 
When Cranmer wrote with Henry a book called The King's Book, designed to help his campaign, none other than our old friend Thomas Abel wrote a stinging rebuttal called The Unconquered Truth. Abel, if you remember, was the man that Catherine had sent to Spain to stop Henry gaining possession of a papal bull. Then there was the Holy Maid of Kent, a clearly very troubled girl who claimed visions from heaven, saying, no doubt in a Trelawney-esque manner, the grim things would happen to the kingdom if this divorce went through. This girl, named Elizabeth Barton, was widely listened to and even had a couple of audiences with the king himself. Hateful propaganda swirled that Anne was a witch, stuff I'll get into in the later episode. It was all spiralling out of control, but more to the point, Henry was still losing. He held all the big cards here, but he couldn't defeat Catherine's scrappy insurgent campaign. Henry could not believe he was being so roundly trounced in the religious battle. When the Pope wrote again, ordering to attend the tribunal in Rome, he angrily exclaimed to the papal nuncio, quote, I shall never consent to his being the judge. I care not a fig for all his excommunications. Let him follow his own at Rome. I will do here what I think best. Henry made one last attempt now to bully Catherine into submission before pressing the red button on England's relationship with Rome. He sent Norfolk, Suffolk and a handful of other leading nobles to Catherine's apartments at Greenwich Palace, where she was staying, as usual, with Henry, Anne and the court. As usual, Catherine had been forewarned of their coming and so was well prepared. They said that Henry was being unjustly threatened by the Pope on her instruction, that for the security of the kingdom he could not leave, the civil war was possible if she did not back down and allow the case to be heard outside of Rome. She also had to recognise Henry's authority over her, quote, both temporally and spiritually. This was a very weak argument, and Catherine destroyed it with ease. She pointed out to them that both at Wolsey's secret ecclesiastical court and legatine court, the jurisdiction of the papacy was recognised by both sides. She had not started this. She was just playing by the rules of the game that had been set out for her. Moreover, while Henry was her temporal master, her spiritual master was God, and through him, the Pope. They then accused her of rushing the Pope into a decision. They accused her of lying about her virginity. These were all swatted away by Catherine, as easy as you like. The party departed despondent, and apparently very embarrassed. While they were all supporters of Henry, this did not make them natural enemies of Catherine. They hated what they had done. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. And they had utterly failed. When they reported back to Henry about this, they said that Catherine's steadfastness could be summed up by two things. Henry asked if it was Charles V and the Pope. No, they replied, it was God and her soul and conscience. Henry knew then that he had no inducement, no threat, no argument, no nothing, could persuade Catherine to give in. She was not rational, she was not reasonable, she was the obstinate, immovable object that refused to budge. Henry could not beat her by conventional means. He had to shift the goalposts. A little while later, Henry, Anne and the court went off on a hunt. Catherine was not informed. They never returned. Catherine was now, effectively, alone and she would never see her husband again. The only upside to this was that she could be finally reunited with her daughter Mary. They'd been apart for so long, and these were precious days for them both. For in a very real sense, they were in this together. Catherine faced having her marriage annulled and losing her crown, but Mary faced the threat of disinheritance and bastardy. A few days after he left, Catherine sent Henry a letter. This was a ritual of theirs. Every three days they would write. She enclosed a jewel with it as proof of her identity. She inquired about his health and wished she had had a chance to say goodbye. When he received it, Henry hung the messenger out to dry, raging that she had no right to say such things and banned her from writing to him again. Of course, Catherine ignored him and wrote again. This time the messenger came back with a reply. Henry wanted to come hunt at Windsor, where she was staying. She had to leave. Catherine was sent to the moor in Hertfordshire and Mary was sent to Richmond. They would never see each other again. Three months after being exiled, Henry sent another group of nobles to talk to her, but this time they used a new tactic. They threw themselves at the feet of the Queen, begging her to listen to reason, to protect the safety of the kingdom and that of Mary. While their body language suggested supplication, their words carried threat. But no one could supplicate quite like Catherine. She too sank to her knees and begged back, imploring them to persuade Henry to come back to her, to end the wrongs that his counsellors were inflicting on her, to let God put him back on the right track. She would do anything, go anywhere, if her lord husband wished, but she could not dissolve their marriage. It was not in her power. Reportedly, the whole room was in tears after this display, but her resolve was clear to all. She was not just willing to risk her own future here, she was willing to martyr her daughter as well. Henry's pressure on the English clergy continued to breed opposition. A Franciscan friar named William Peto preached before Henry in the court at Easter 1532, warning that this divorce threatened the crown and warned of the dangers of unabounded affection and false counsel. When Henry later tried to get a different preacher, Peto's fellow Franciscans reacted angrily. They later told Chapuis that they too were willing to die for Catherine. The English church was splitting apart. Henry then jacked up the pressure on Rome, taking away his chief source of income from England in the Annates, and effectively pushed a law through Parliament, allowing him alone to appoint bishops. Even when his Lord Chancellor Thomas More resigned, he pressed on and appointed two men who would oversee probably the biggest revolution in English history since 1066. Thomas Cramner was made Archbishop of Canterbury, and Thomas Cromwell, once Wolsey's right-hand man, was made the king's principal secretary. Together, they would begin to see about the severing of all ties between England and Rome. 
This was all too much, even for this prevaricating Pope, and in November 1532 he gave Henry another final warning. End all this, dismiss Anne, recall Catherine, or be excommunicated. Henry ignored him, and then did the unthinkable. In January 1533, he married Anne Boleyn. Spoiler alert, I guess. At Easter the following year, a church council in England ruled that the Pope did not have the divine authority to allow a man to marry his brother's widow. A group of lawyers then judged that Arthur and Catherine had indeed consummated their marriage, and that was that. Henry's marriage to Anne was legalised. Catherine, thanks to this, had her marriage annulled. It was all over. At this, the Pope panicked and walked back several of his threats. He told the imperial ambassador that unless Charles was willing to invade England on his and Catherine's behalf, then he would not excommunicate Henry, Anne and his advisers. In England, Henry had Anne crowned as queen in front of a distinctly unimpressed crowd, all the while Catherine was still abandoned in Hertfordshire. This was all made official in a royal proclamation in July 1533. The preamble read, quote, The non-legitimate marriage between the King's Highness and the Lady Catherine, relict widow of Prince Arthur, has been legitimately dissolved by just ways and opinions. The divorce and separation having been made between His Highness and Lady Catherine by the Right Reverend Father in God, the Archbishop of Canterbury. She was banned from calling herself Queen, as were others from calling her Queen. In retaliation to this, Pope Clement finally, you know, did something. He excommunicated Henry, not only for divorcing his wife against specific papal instruction, but then had committed bigamy by marrying another. After the birth of Princess Elizabeth later that year, Henry demanded that Mary renounce her title as princess, promising her that she'd be well compensated and treated if she did so. Again, the sensible and rational thing to do here would be to acquiesce. No good would come from defying her father here. But she was her mother's daughter, and so she refused. The two were cut from the same cloth, and maybe, I'm just speculating here, this was an act of solidarity. I haven't talked too much about Catherine's relationship with her daughter, but the two clearly shared a strong bond. This is despite the fact they had spent remarkably little time together. Mary had been sent to the Welsh marches aged nine, and so had been away from the court for most of her life. But of course, separation between parent and child at this point was the norm. It did not prevent often a bond forming, but theirs does seem a particularly strong one. This is shown in a letter written by Catherine to Mary around this time, fortifying her own living child against the threat that Elizabeth represented. Quote, Daughter, I heard such things today that I do perceive, if it be true, the time is coming that Almighty God will prove you, and I am very glad for it, for I trust he doth handle you with a good love. I would, good daughter, that you did know that with how good a heart I write this letter unto you. I never did one with a better heart, for I perceive very well that God loveth you. I beseech him of his goodness to continue it, and if it fortune that you shall have no one to be with you of your acquaintance, I think it best you keep your keys to yourself, for howsoever it is, so shall be done as shall please him. And now you shall begin, and by likelihood I shall follow. I sit not a rush by it, for when they have done the uttermost they can, then I am sure of the amendment. We never come to the kingdom of heaven but by troubles. Daughter, wheresoever you become, take no pains to send for me, for if I may, I will send to you. By your loving mother, Catherine the Queen. Earlier that year, Catherine had been moved again, this time to Buckton in Cambridgeshire, and both she and her daughter had their households reduced again in another attempt to intimidate them into submission. Then another embassy came from Henry, 
ordering her to go to Samisham, a house in the Fens which was notorious for being, quote, the most insalubrious and pestilential residence in all of England. Catherine flat out refused, suspecting that Henry was essentially trying to have her killed in the most passive way possible, and equally refused to be addressed as Princess Dowager. Suffolk, who led the delegation, attempted to extract from all of her servants an oath that they would call her Princess Dowager, but most were all too loyal to their mistress to do that, though some eventually did so after many threats. The rest of them were sacked. Suffolk then packed up all her belongings with a few servants that she had left and attempted to force her to leave. There was a growing crowd outside the castle who were apparently, quote, weeping and cursing to see such cruelty. Catherine locked herself in her room, refusing to come out, saying that if Suffolk wished to take her, then he had to braid down the door. Of course, he wouldn't do that. It would be an unforgivable breach of protocol. And besides, according to one member of the party, they were worried that if they dragged her out kicking and screaming, they, quote, would be set upon by the crowd. Once again, then, Henry had sent men to Catherine's residence to extract submission to his wishes, and once again, Catherine had played her limited cards right and won the exchange. The furious Suffolk is said to have exclaimed, quote, We find here the most obstinate woman that may be. But this was a Pyrrhic victory, for she was still in her home, but her home was now a prison. She had but one hope, and that was the Pope. Maybe if the Pope was to decide on the case completely, if he was to lay down a threat so severe that it represented a real and serious existential threat to Henry, then maybe he might back down. It was a long shot, but it was all Catherine had. In March 1534, after five long years of deliberation, Pope Clement made his decision. Along with his cardinals, he threw out Henry's request for an annulment. His marriage to Catherine had been, quote, valid and canonical, but it was too little too late. The Pope's procrastination, Catherine's intransigence, and Henry's passion to marry Anne had all meant that the wheels were set in motion in England that could not and would not be stopped. Because on the same very day in England, Parliament passed the first act of succession under the watchful eye of Thomas Cromwell. It stipulated that the marriage between Henry and Anne was legal, and that their children would be the only ones that had claimed to succession. It claimed that Catherine's marriage to Arthur had been, quote, carnally known, and that she therefore never had been queen. She was just the widow of his brother. It was now considered treason for anyone to deny the right of Anne to be queen, and therefore equally so to consider Catherine the queen. This was followed a few months later by the Act of Supremacy, making Henry, essentially, the Pope of England. Once more, the penalty for disobeying these laws, or even speaking out against them, was death. And this was not an empty threat. Remember Elizabeth Barton from earlier? The Holy Maid of Kent? She was the one who claimed to see visions from God prophesying the death of Henry. And then, when rather inconveniently he did not die, that God did not consider Anne to be his legitimate wife. Even before the act of succession she had been arrested, but now she was a traitor, and so was hanged with some of her supporters. Cromwell then started going after bigger fish. Bishop Fisher was also picked up as a reported follower of Barton, and just a few weeks after the act passed, the former Lord Chancellor Thomas More was sent to the Tower for refusing to abide by it. Both had their titles seized, and would eventually be executed for treason. Heads were really starting to roll here. Remember when this was all so much more civilised? Well... Thomas Cromwell doesn't do civilise. He got the job done, no matter what the cost. Now, once again, Henry sent a delegation to Catherine. He had demonstrated to her just how far he was willing to go. 
He had divorced her. By the law of the land, he had effectively said that continuing to defy him was a capital crime. What more did he have to do to get her to comply? She had recently been moved, for the last time, to Kimbolton, a fairly small manor house in Cambridgeshire, and so was there when a delegation of bishops came to her from Henry. Surely she would not deny men of the cloth. Their message was simple, accept all that has happened or you'll be considered a traitor, and suffer a traitor's death. They found Catherine really in very poor shape. Going to Chapuis, quote, The Queen has not been out, except to hear mass in a gallery. She will not eat or drink what the new servants provide. The little she eats in her anguish is prepared by a chamberwoman, and her room is used as a kitchen for lack of a proper place. This certainly was a come down from her glory days by Henry's side. But once again, they were sent packing. She called their bluff, that Henry was extremely unkeen to have them publicly arrest Catherine. People around the country were finding any sentiment in favour of her a death sentence, though. Even before the Act of Supremacy, men and women, young and old, anyone who failed to respect the new order was arrested. If they refused to repent, they were executed. It was a reign of terror, with people denouncing their neighbours over petty grievances, all over the king's marriage. Quite incredible. Catherine heard of hundreds of people who expressed support for her, including a good many monks and friars, arrested and then many executed. Some, like the Carthusian friars of London, were hung, drawn and quartered as traitors. Now though, popular support of Catherine becomes very much tied up in opposition to the Act of Supremacy, so I won't talk much more about it, but I wanted to give you a flavour of the time that we're in. We don't know how much Catherine felt about these deaths, because of course none of this might have happened if she had just given Henry what he wanted. She certainly would still be living in a palace. She would still be rich. Her daughters would be the same. They would have lost their exalted positions, but still have been far from the utter despair that they were in now. Of course, it would be unfair to blame Catherine blindly for all of this. After all, she had just refused to annul a marriage that she believed with all her soul and conscience to be right. It was Henry, Cromwell and the rest of his counsellors that had reduced her to near poverty, ripped up the religious fabric of the kingdom and executed God knows how many people. But she would not have been human if she did not feel that the blood of Fisher, Moore and those friars were, to some degree, on her hands. Catherine and Mary, of course, would never acknowledge either act, and so must have steeled themselves for arrest and death. While Henry's actions shocked Europe, not least Charles V, there was little appetite to do anything about it just yet. Charles had bayer fish to fry with his war against the Ottoman Turks, and the threat of renewed conflict with France. Even when nobles in England offered to rise up in support of an invasion, he said that, quote, We do not see how it is possible for the present to remedy the mischief by force, as in truth we have more than a just cause to do. He did though admit that, quote, The ill will of the King of England to the Queen and Princess is cruel and horrible. Charles was the only man who could save Catherine from her slide towards death, but he refused to help her. Yet it would not be the headsman that would kill Catherine. Bizarrely enough, it was Welsh beer of all things. She was already ill, but the beer managed to make it far worse. Some suspect poison, but it seems unlikely. In her final days, she received a few visitors, including her former lady-in-waiting Maria de Salinas, who came rushing up from London to be with her former mistress. Another caller was Eustace Chapuis. Catherine had rarely got on with the men sent to represent her kingdom in England a job, of course, she had held all those years ago when life seemed so much simpler. Chapuis, though, was different. He was her friend in adversity, one of the very few people at the English court who was always on her side and backed her to the hilt. 
He was by her bedside for a few hours a day for five days. She begged him to keep an eye on Mary. She railed against the Pope and the Emperor. All the while, Chapuis soothed her. Just before she died, she wrote a letter to the man she still considered her lawful husband, Henry. Or at least we think she did. There is a chance this letter is fictitious. But even if it isn't wholly true, I think it certainly reflects the sentiment of what she felt toward her husband in her final hours. Quote, My most dear lord, king, and husband, the hour of my death now drawing on, the tender love I owe you forceth me, my case being such, to commend myself to you, and to put you in remembrance with a few words of the health and safeguard of your soul, which you ought to prefer before all worldly matters, and before the care and pampering of your body, for the which you have cast me into many calamities, and yourself into many troubles. For my part, I pardon you everything, and wish to devoutly pray God that he will pardon you also. For the rest, I commend unto you our daughter Mary, beseeching you to be a good father unto her, as I have heretofore desired. I entreat you also, on behalf of my maids, to give marriage portions, which is not much, they being but three. For all my other servants I solicit wages due them, and a year more, lest they be unprovided for. Lastly, I make this vow, that mine eyes desire you above all things. The last rites were read to her, and then in the early hours of the 7th of January, 1536, she died. She was 50 years old. The likeliest cause of her death was cancer, as the embalmer mentions that her heart was black when it was removed. She was buried three and a half weeks later at Peterborough Abbey. She had wished to be buried at a Franciscan friary, but this was turned down. She was buried with all the honour owed to a dowager princess, of course, not a queen, and neither Henry or Anne attended, and nor was Mary allowed to be with her mother at her own funeral. In his biography of Anne, which I have used quite a bit in my research for this episode, Patrick Williams says that when Catherine died, quote, she was already, in a very real sense, a figure from the past. She was England's last queen before the Reformation, which began to engulf the kingdom in the latter part of her reign. Some have blamed her, in part, for this great religious revolution that began with Henry's seeking of a divorce from her, and would be set in stone first by Edward VI, and then by Elizabeth I. But it's very possible that it would have happened anyway. Her faith was not extraordinary in its own time. She was far from the most religious woman to have ever been Queen of England, but it was deep-set within her. I've called Catherine obstinate quite a lot in the past few episodes, indeed as part of the title of this one, taken from a quote made by the Duke of Suffolk. And the reason why I do is because she was a woman who never gave ground when she believed she was right. She was a good and faithful wife to Henry. She did everything in her power to help and protect him. But she would never give up on the basic principle that her marital union with him was lawful and indissoluble. As I've said a few times in the last few weeks, if she had agreed to annul her marriage with Henry, then she could have lived out a very comfortable life. Mary would have been disinherited, but there is every chance she too could have had a comfortable, quiet life, well provided for by her father. With the benefit of hindsight, it's easy to get frustrated with Catherine, as she continued to make her circumstances worse and worse. Every victory that she won over Henry, and let's not forget that she beat him at pretty much every confrontation, meant a worsening of her own personal circumstances. But to reject the validity of her marriage to Henry was just not the way Catherine was wired. She was the daughter of one of the most powerful, strong women of medieval and early modern history in Isabella of Castile. She was a woman of principle and of God. A world in which Catherine agreed to dissolve her marriage is the same one in which a pig would fly over the divorce proceedings. 
It was never going to happen. Was her marriage to Arthur legal? Was the match consummated? Plenty of people have their theories, and I have my suspicions. But what I've tried to do in this series is move the conversation about Catherine away from just problems giving birth and being jilted by Henry. I want to tell you about one of the most courageous women to have ever been Queen of England. A woman born into privilege, but found herself continually caught between the egos of powerful men, starting with her father and Henry VII, through to her husband, the Pope, and Charles V. Yet the story that is not often told is that of a near-perfect queen. Her role as an advisor to Henry, the bringer of a rich dowry, an ambassador for her country, a leader in wartime, a perfect moral example. These are impressive accomplishments. She even gave birth to a future ruler of England, though few would have predicted that at the time of her death. Yet it was her failure to produce a healthy son, her inability to perform the prime imperative of queenship that defined her in the 16th century and has continued to define her to this day. And that, to put it mildly, is a damned shame. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.